we'll, we'll dig in the quarry of the Word of God and see what we come up with. Right, um, we're on uh, 1 Kings chapter 18. Just did to see what my voice is going to do tonight. Certainly didn't manage to sing. <laughs> One, 1 Kings. <laughs> right, and find chapter 18. 1 Kings. Chapter 18. And uh, we're just going to read two verses, 17 and 18. And uh, did Obadiah and everything last week, and now Ahab and Elijah are together again. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? And Elijah answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have, and your father's house, because you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now, there's two things there that we're going to look at tonight. Firstly, there's an accusation. Ahab accuses Elijah of being the troubler of Israel, one who is bring, bringing trouble and disturbance on God's people. That's the first thing, an accusation. But secondly, we're going to look at the reality behind that accusation, because as we're going to see, it's a smokescreen, an absolute smokescreen to cover something else. Now, let's have a look at the accusation first of all. Ahab accuses him of being a troubler of Israel. Now, if you go to Joshua chapter 8, sorry, Joshua chapter 7, um, I just want to show you the history of that accusation so that you can get it absolutely clear in your minds what it is Ahab is accusing Elijah of. <coughs> You're certainly going to see it's ironic. Um, <coughs> now, in Joshua, it's really just the last couple of verses in Joshua chapter 7 we want, but just give you the, the context. Uh, in Joshua chapter 6, you've got the Battle of Jericho, and Joshua is leading the people, and they march round Jericho for seven days until the walls fall down, and then in they go, and they destroy the city. Now, because Jericho <coughs> was the first city, the first conquest, as they go into Canaan, God has said to them that everything, all the booty, all the spoil in there is to be given to me. So you're not to profit out of this one bit. It's the first fruits. You've got to give it all to me. And so Joshua had commanded the people that once they had plundered the city, that everything was to like go in the Lord's treasury. No one was to keep anything for themselves. Now, what happened next is that just down the road from... Jericho was a place called Ai. Now, Jericho was a biggie. Ai, it actually means a heap of ruins. <laughs> Ai was a really little town and no problem to defeat it whatsoever. In theory, Israel could have defeated Ai whether the Lord was with them or not. So, having done Jericho, the Lord was with them, no problem, then they attack Ai. And they got marmalised. The city of Ai repelled them and there was this incredible defeat. And Joshua, you know, is sort of praying. He says, Lord, what on earth went wrong? Jericho was brilliant, the victory. You did it. And then we did the same at Ai, and we got marmalised. Lord, what's the problem? And God spoke to Joshua, and he said, the problem is there's sin in the camp. You're out of fellowship. There's sin in the camp, and I'm not with you. 
And what had happened was, Joshua did investigations, <clears throat> and a bloke called Acan had sort of stolen some of the booty from Jericho, and he'd taken it himself. So that whereas Israel had been commanded that the takings of Jericho were all for the Lord, Achan had robbed the Lord, and it hadn't been put right by Israel. So they were defeated at Ai. And when Joshua seeks the Lord to find out why, the Lord reveals to him about Achan. Now, if we just pick it up in Joshua chapter 7, and uh, we'll just read uh, from verse 25. Achan has been exposed, all right, and... Um, <clears throat> And Joshua said to Achan, Why did you bring trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. And all Israel stoned him with stones. They burned them with fire and stoned them with stones. And they raised over him a great heap of stones that remain to this day. Then the Lord turned from his burning anger. Therefore, to this day, the name of that place is called the Valley of Achor. And Achor means trouble. Israel called it the Valley of Trouble because Achan's sin was a troubling to Israel. And that is the history of this accusation so that by the time of Ahab and Elijah, if someone was called a troubler of Israel, the accusation was that your sin is bringing God's judgment on us as a nation. Now, what is so ironic I mean, we're going to see that this accusation that Ahab hurls at Elijah is pure smokescreen. But, of course, the irony of this, you know, that Ahab is accusing Elijah of that, is do you remember um, in the first study we did, we looked back and uh, after the Battle of Jericho, God said to Joshua that Jericho is never to be rebuilt and I'm going to curse whoever does it. And it was in Ahab's reign that Jericho was rebuilt. Now, isn't it incredible that here, Ahab is accusing Elijah of being a troubler of Israel. Uh, basically, he's saying, Elijah, you're a troublemaker. So, it's three and a half years since they've met. Uh, Elijah has told Ahab, there's not going to be any dew or rain, there's going to be a drought, until I say so. For three and a half years, there's been a drought, just as Elijah said. Ahab and Elijah are face to face again, <coughs> and Ahab says to him, you're a troublemaker. Now, let's, let's be clear that it's a serious accusation. Just, just go to Romans 12. <clears throat> Romans chapter 12. It occurs to me that if anyone uh, ever listens to this tape outside the church, so they get it from the catalogue, and it's the first tape they've ever listened to, they're going to think we believe in women Bible teachers, aren't they? <laughs> My voice sounds to me like soprano. <laughs> anyway, yeah, Romans, Romans 12 and verse 18. <coughs> I'm a man, <laughs> I'm a man, testing. Um, yeah, now Paul says this. He says, if possible, so far as it depends upon you, live peaceably with all. And that's tremendously important. Insofar as it depends upon us, we must make sure that we live at peace with those around us. Now, obviously, there's a time when our commitment to the Lord means that there's not going to be any peace. But uh, believe you me, anyone who unnecessarily causes trouble, that is a serious thing to do. And uh, if you go over into Romans 16, we'll see Paul make a, a definitive judgment on troublemakers in the church. Romans 16, verse 17. He says, I appeal to you, brethren, 
to take note of those who create dissensions and difficulties in opposition to the doctrine which you have been taught. Avoid them, for such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. Now there, Paul is saying that when you have got a troubler of Israel, a troublemaker amongst God's people, that is a very serious thing to be. And of course, Paul says they're not to be tolerated. If you've got troublemakers in the church, if they won't repent, they are out. So this accusation that Ahab hurls at Elijah is a very, very serious one. But of course, what we've got to ask is, is the accusation true? Was Elijah a troublemaker in the way in which Ahab was accusing him of being? Was Elijah a troubler of Israel? Now, the answer is no, of course he wasn't a troublemaker. Elijah was God's man in the situation, not a troublemaker. So we've got to ask, Ahab accuses Elijah of something that Elijah is totally innocent of. So what exactly is going on here? And we're going to look at, at some real mechanics of conviction of sin and spiritual warfare here. We're going to see some fascinating principles of how it works out. And it basically boils down to this. When God convicts people of sin, if the people... <laughs> I'll try that again. <clears throat> when God convicts people of sin, if they're not willing to face up to that sin and repent, i.e. they stick their heels in, they're not prepared to come clean, God's convicting them, but they're not prepared to come clean, then you'll find that often such people will respond by turning on the people that God is using to convict them. So the point is that very often God convicts people of sin, each one of us, through other people. Not always, but often it's like that. So there's maybe something in my life, something in your life, God is really convicting you of it. And maybe there are other people who are the channel for that conviction. Now, if I, in that situation, or you, if you're in it, if we were to harden our hearts and say, no, there's no, you know, no, I'm, I don't accept that. I'm not putting that right, I, you know, that was all right for me to do. If we become stubborn and refuse to repent on it, then very often the instinct that rises inside of you is anger against the people that God is using to do that convicting. And there's something inside of you, your sinful nature wants to turn on them. So therefore, to be a channel of conviction of sin in people's lives who aren't prepared to repent often means that they will turn on you as the person who's doing the convicting. And nowhere do we see this more powerfully in the Bible than with Jesus himself. Let's actually see this. Go to Luke chapter 4. Gospel of Luke <coughs> and chapter 4. And if you find verse 16, we'll start reading from there. <coughs> Luke chapter 4, and we'll start reading from verse 16. Right. And Jesus came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And he went to the synagogue, as was his custom, on the Sabbath day. So he's gone back to where he was raised as a child. And he stood up to read, and there was given to him the book of the prophet Isaiah. 
he opened the book and found the place where it was written and now he's reading from, it wouldn't have been a book, it was a scroll. He's reading from the scroll. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Now all the Jews knew that this was a messianic prophecy, no problem there, they all knew that. And he closed the book or the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. Uh, in those days you sat down to teach. Today we tell, well I, I don't, I sit down, but a lot of it they stand up. In the synagogue you sit down. Um, and he began to say, uh, and all the eyes in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and wondered at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here also in your own country. Now, so far it's going well. They're impressed. They've heard about the miracles and, you know, they've heard what he's saying. No problem. Up to this point, all is going rather well. You know, there's, there's all these people in the synagogue and, you know, they're kind of lapping it. You know, Jesus has, as it were, got them in the palm of his hand. Now then, Jesus had this really bad habit. Well, many Christians today would say it's a bad habit. He always spoiled a good thing. <laughs> now listen to this. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his own country. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heaven was shut up three years and six months, when there came a great famine over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Zidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. Now, I've just got, you know, to help you understand what Jesus is saying here. Um, at the time of Elijah, God's judgment was on Israel, wasn't it? So much so that God sent Elijah completely out of the situation. Now, there were, you know, sort of like um, loads and loads of widows in Israel who could have looked after him. But God sent him to the Gentiles. And also, after the prophet Elijah, he was replaced by a young man called Elisha. And we'll be seeing him at the end of the series. And Elisha kind of carried on where Elijah left off. And one of the things that happened in Elisha's time uh, was that there was a, a Syrian captain called Naaman who was a leper. And through Elisha, God healed him. Now, one of the things we've seen when we've been doing the tradition of the elders and the Jewish background like that is uh, that until the time of Jesus, no Jewish leper had ever been healed. So the point is that Jesus is saying to them, I want you to remember, in the time of Elijah and Elisha, Elijah was looked after by a Gentile. And also a leper was healed, but he was a Gentile. And what was the reason? Because at that period in history, Israel were out of fellowship with God. And what Jesus is saying to them, he's saying, right, you're sitting there and you're just starting to get a glimmer that I'm the Messiah and you're impressed and you like me. But I'm afraid I've got to tell you that as a nation you're out of fellowship with God. You've got to repent. 
Now that is what this teaching meant to them. Let's see that now by carrying on. Verse 28. You ask yourself, did they understand what he was saying? When they heard this, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and put him out of the city and led him to the brow of the hill on which their city was built that they might throw him down headlong. The congregation in the synagogue was so angry that they got up, they rushed Jesus at the front of the synagogue, they dragged him out of the city up to the top of the hill where there was a cliff face and they were going to kill him. They were going to throw him over the cliff. Now, Jesus escaped because it wasn't his time to die. But can you see, Jesus was here saying, you're out of fellowship. Jesus was the Son of God. Can you imagine the conviction of sin that was landing on these people in the synagogue? Now then, were they willing to repent? No, they weren't. And look at their reaction. The hatred that came out of them for Jesus, because Jesus was the human channel of the conviction that was coming on them. The truth that Jesus spoke to them cut right through their hypocrisy and their religious sham. And so they turned on him in absolute anger. Now what we're seeing here is that if people are convicted of sin and aren't willing to come clean, then very often if there's a human channel of that conviction, they will turn on that human channel in anger. Let's, uh, let's see the mechanics of this a bit more clearly. Uh, go to Matthew chapter 12 and let's see it working with the Pharisees. Matthew chapter 12, <coughs> and uh, just want verse 22. <coughs> and it says, Then a blind and dumb demoniac was brought to Jesus, and he healed him, so that the dumb man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? And of course, you'll remember from our studies in, in Jewish history at the time uh, that the casting out of a demon that caused blindness and dumbness in particular was a messianic sign. The, the, the exorcists at the time of Jesus could not cast out a demon that struck its victims dumb because they believe that you have to use a formula in which you've got to establish the demon's name. And of course, if the demon won't talk to you, you're stuck. So they designated the casting out of a demon that made someone dumb, that was a messianic sign. And here Jesus does just that. And you can see the reaction of the people. All the people were amazed and said, can this be the son of David? Now these people were used to Jewish exorcists casting demons out. It didn't make them wonder if they were the son of David, Messiah, but Jesus had cast out a dumb spirit, as it were. And so here the people are saying, my goodness, it's Messiah. And the Pharisees are standing round and... Uh, but when the Pharisees heard it, they said, it's only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. And of course, there you've got the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, accusing Jesus of being demonic. Um, you know, a rejection of Jesus being Messiah, when he had just proven to them beyond doubt that he was Messiah. Now then, the point is that here, Jesus has proved to them that he is the Son of God. He's proved it to them, not just by fulfilling Old Testament scripture, but he's also proved it to them according to their own teaching, because the, the idea that only Messiah could cast out a dumb demon, that didn't come from the Old Testament, that came from the teaching of the Pharisees. Alright, so Jesus has proved it even according to their own tradition of the elders as well. So Jesus has given them absolute proof of who he is, the Son of God. But the problem is for the Pharisees, 
is that even though Jesus had proven he was their Messiah, he wasn't the sort of Messiah that they wanted. They, they were starting to think, right, this is not the God that we want. Jesus was the wrong God for them because he was requiring things of them that they didn't want to give. So, therefore, there were three options that the Pharisees had. And we'll look at each one very, very carefully. Option number one. The Pharisees could admitted that he was the Messiah, submitted to him, as you ought to do, to the Messiah, and put everything that was wrong in their lives right. That was option number one admit that Jesus was the Messiah and repent and bring their lives under his authority. That was option number one. But of course, option number one was no good for them. They weren't willing to change. They were quite happy with their sin, quite happy with their lives. So option number one, no good. They didn't want to repent. Right, the second option was to admit that he was the Messiah, because after all, Jesus had proven it beyond doubt. So option number two, admit that he was the Messiah, but still go against him and say, well, look, we're not going to submit to you, we're not interested, you're the wrong God for us. But, of course, that option is no good either. And, and the reason it's no good either is that when you're a Pharisee, and when your entire life depends on being right with God, <laughs> how can you go against him? Can you see? Self-righteous people, particularly self-righteous people who are claiming to be in fellowship with God, they can't be seen to be blatantly going against the Lord, can they? Because what on earth will people think? How could a Pharisee remain a Pharisee if he was openly saying, well, no, I don't agree with God, I'm going to repel against it? Uh, same with an out-of-fellowship Christian. How can an out-of-fellowship Christian say, well, I'm just rebelling against God? Of course you can't. That option isn't open to you, is it? Because in a situation like that, you're determined that you're going to be seen to be right. The Pharisees were determined that they be thought of as being right with God. So option number two, admit Jesus was Messiah, but go against him, that wasn't open to them either, because they depended on being the, the religious right with God people, because they were so pr proud and self-righteous. So option number two was no good either. Well, that only left one option, and it was this, to find a way round it. And you find a way round it by, if they could discredit Jesus, and if they could convince themselves and others that he wasn't the Messiah. Now, they had a job because Jesus was working messianic miracles. How would you get around that one? Well, you get around that one by saying, oh, it's Satan who's empowering him. Now, this is absolutely perfect. If they could discredit Jesus, convince people that he wasn't Messiah, and, uh, and of course, you know, all these miracles, well, that was the devil through him, and that Jesus got his power because he was demonic. Well, therefore, if you can establish that someone is demonic and deceived, then obviously you don't have to, uh, well, therefore it means that they must be wrong in what they're saying and teaching. You see what I mean? You don't have to submit to someone or take any notice of someone if they're demonic or up the spout. So therefore, you get round the message, because it was the truth that they didn't like, you get round the message by throwing up a smokescreen of rumour innuendo and false accusation about the messenger. Uh, it's, it's funny, some ancient kings, it was a very dangerous job being a messenger in the ancient world. Uh, I mean, if a king, say, sent his army out to conquer another nation, now the king might be back in his own country, and uh, he's dependent on a mess messengers coming through telling him how things are going. And uh, it was not uncommon that if a messenger returned from the front line with the message that the king's army had lost, very often the king would chop off the messenger's head. 
Do you see? Because he was bringing such bad news that he he killed the messenger. Not a very nice job. But when people are being convicted of sin, very often if they're not prepared to come clean about it, and this is how the Pharisees responded to Jesus, what they did is, we'll get round the message by throwing up a smoke screen of innuendo, uh, false accusation about the messenger, i.e. go for the messenger and then the message gets lost in all the nasty things you're doing to the messenger. Convince everyone there's something wrong with the messenger and then the message will get lost. And that is the option that the Pharisees took with Jesus. They started telling people, he's demonic, he's demonic. Throw up that smoke screen. Therefore, by accusing him of this, that and the other, then there's a sense in which they're able to wiggle out of the truth that the Holy Spirit is putting into their hearts and convicting them with. And of course the point is that these accusations, as, it, you know, as they came against Jesus, they, they came out of sheer anger and resentment. It was pure venom. Because the point is there was not a shred of evidence in any of the accusations that were thrown at him. If you read through the Gospels, you'll find that Jesus was accused in turn of being a demoniac, of being a glutton and a wine-bibber. Now, with that comes the connotation of also being immoral. That, that, that went to, you know, the low life of Israel. And also, he was accused of being a madman. Now, and people hated him. And so, all these accusations were made because of this reaction of hate against Jesus and his teaching. And of course the point is, it's all a big smokescreen. And it's to try and to hide whatever the issues are. So that for instance, Jesus gave teaching concerning A. And, and there's lots of people with, with this glaring A sin in their lives. Do they want to repent? No, they don't. So they kick up a, a smokescreen, they attack Jesus, in the hope that A, whatever it is, will get lost in the furore of the accusations and stuff like that. It's a smokescreen behind which they try to hide, uh, muddying the waters, there's clear conviction of sin and truth coming through, so you muddy the waters to confuse everyone and uh, you know you throw up innuendo, you try and accuse the messenger of this, that or the other and then everyone gets confused by it, uh, everyone's mind is off the real issues and then you can say, well of course they're up the spout, you don't have to listen to anything that they say and of course neither do I, you know, neither do I either. So therefore it's getting out of the conviction of sin that is coming upon them. And of course, when this is happening, this principle, when it is happening, the thing that gives it away is always the reaction. It's the reaction of anger, hatred and false accusation. That reaction is always the giveaway when people are being convicted of sin, they know they're guilty, they have no intention of repenting, so up goes the smokescreen, the reaction of anger, lies, blah, blah, blah. It's always a dead cert that that is what's happening when you get that reaction in people. And can you see that this is exactly what Ahab, and Ahab was the leader of God's people, this is exactly what Ahab was doing when confronted with Elijah, he goes straight in there and accuses Elijah of being a troublemaker. Because what's interesting is that you will find nine times out of ten that the false accusations that come against people who are being used in this way, 
you will find that the people being convicted, who are trying to get out of that conviction, they'll accuse the messenger, God's channel, they'll accuse God's channel of what it is they're being convicted of. Because we saw that Achan was a troubler of Israel. Why? Well, he kept stuff from the Battle of Jericho against what God said. God said, don't keep it for yourself. Achan did. He went directly against the Lord and he brought trouble on Israel. All right? So Achan was a trouble of Israel. But also, after Jericho had been raided and looted, God said, Jericho is never to be rebuilt. Well, under Ahab's reign, it was. And also, Ahab was worshipping a false god. Now then, who was the troubler of Israel? Who was it who had brought God's judgment on Israel? Was it Elijah? Or was it Ahab? It was Ahab. So what does Ahab do? He can't get out of it because it's the truth. You can't change facts. So he accuses Elijah of exactly the same thing. Isn't it incredible? Now let's have a look at how Elijah handles this. Because Elijah handled this really well. Um, and Elijah answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have and your father's house because you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. The moment that Ahab threw that accusation of Jesus, uh, threw that accusation at Elijah, Elijah threw it straight back in Ahab's face and said, no, I think you're getting your facts wrong, sir. You're the one who's done this. But the point is, when Ahab through the accusation at Elijah, there was no content in it, was there? It was just, you're a troublemaker. When Elijah threw it back at Ahab, he didn't just say, no, Ahab, you're the troublemaker. He says, Ahab, you're the troublemaker because you're guilty of this, this, this. And there were specific, verifiable accusations in it, which were all true. Whereas the accusation that Ahab threw at Elijah, there's no content in it. It was just a blanket, you're a troublemaker. You see, nothing definite in there at all. So Elijah threw this right back in Ahab's face. Now then, back into the Gospels, find John's Gospel, and let's just see Jesus doing exactly the same thing. Because Jesus handled it the same way that Elijah did. Or rather, I think Elijah handled it that way because Jesus was leading him to, obviously. If you find John chapter 8, now of course the thing you've got to be aware of is that when people are being convicted of sin and they don't want to repent and come clean, and uh, so they turn on the channel of God's, the channel that God is using. Now, if they then throw accusations at the person that God is using, when that person throws it straight back in their face, they get angrier and angrier and angrier and angrier. And I'll tell you exactly why. Because they haven't got any specific accusations against the channel that God is using. But when the channel that God is using throws it back in their face, they can say, and there's this, and there's that, and there's this, and there's that, and everything you say, they know that it's true. And of course the conviction then increases, and they get madder, and madder, and madder. John chapter 8. Now then, let's, let's just, uh, first of all, verse 43. <coughs> and um, Jesus says, Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You know, here the people say, oh no, we don't understand Jesus, it's a bit too complicated. Jesus is saying, look, you understand full well. You just don't like what I'm saying. And now, verse 46, he says, which of you, 
Now, they're accusing him of various things. He says, okay, which of you convicts me of sin? Okay. Let's have the accusations, lads. What can they say? Jesus is saying, look, be specific. Don't just call me a madman. Don't just call me a... Be specific. What sin have I committed? And he's looking round at them. What can they say? Absolutely nothing. And of course they're getting madder and madder and madder. Go over to chapter 18. Can you begin to understand why they crucified him? The hatred that was generating in their hearts against him month after month after month. Chapter 18. Um, let's read from verse 19. And this is when Jesus is actually before the high priest at one of the illegal trials before he was crucified. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Remember, they brought all these false witnesses in, didn't they? You know, but their stories didn't stand up. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I've always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together. I have said nothing secretly. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. You see, what they're trying to do is they're saying, Jesus, you teach this. And the thing was wrong. But you teach that. We know that this is your secret agenda. And Jesus is saying, look, I've you know, I've always taught in the open. You go and talk to the people who heard me. When he had said this, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand. And in the Greek, it's not, it's, it's not like a slap, it's a punch. You see, the anger, because the conviction is piling on them more and more. And he said, is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, if I have spoken wrongly, bear witness to the wrong. But if I've spoken rightly, why do you strike me? And Jesus said, okay, right, you've just hit me. What for? What for? What exactly was wrong with what I just said? It's no use saying you've just spoken to the high priest wrong. He says, how? What was wrong? I told the truth. And can you see that Jesus, he would always throw it back in their faces. And of course, when you throw it back in their faces, if the accusations are false, what can they do? except just get madder and madder and madder. Um, yeah, I'll just sort of chuck out a couple of personal examples. I, you know, I'm not going to mention any names, but, um, you know, sort of there was a, a... He's a Baptist pastor, and uh, some years ago he got in touch uh, with Robert Lee. I mean, not that Robert knows him at all, and, uh, but apparently he had uh, contacted Robert to warn him against me, and uh, had, had, had told Robert that... Um, you know, that I got involved with a girl in, in his church. I mean, this isn't the same church he's at now. This was, this was years ago. And uh, that I got involved in a girl in his church. And um, I kind of, I split her family up, went off with her. And then after splitting her family up and going off with her, I dumped her. <laughs> all right. And uh, he'd been on the phone to Robert Lee saying all this. And uh, I'll call him Aristotle, all right, for simplicity's sake. Yeah, as Robert told me about it, like, it's daft. Um, anyway, the next time Blinder actually went, went round there, we could sort of see, you know, see through the front door, Robert's that, um, you know, he was sitting there on the phone, and we knocked on the door, and Robert answered the door, and he said, quick, quick, it's your friend Aristotle. And it was this Baptist minister on the phone. And, uh, you know, so I took the phone off Robert, and I said, oh, hello, Aristotle, how are you? You know, because, I mean, obviously I used his real name. Cause, you know, I mean, I, you know, I knew this bloke. And I said, hello, Aristotle, how are you? And there was this silence on the phone. And, and I said to him, now, I understand that you've made certain complaints against me. Um, you know, why don't you just tell me what they are, and I'll see if I can clear them up. And he said, oh, oh no, I haven't any complaints against you at all, Barry. So he rang off. Is it because it's just totally false accusations. What he has said had happened had never happened. 
He knew it had never happened. And he knew that I knew it had never happened because I was the one who was supposed to have done it. Now, when he's talking to someone other than me behind my back, well, it's easy, isn't it? But when he, I ended up on the phone to him, you know, that I just happened to be there just after he phoned Robert, and of course he just put the phone down and rang off. Can you see? That's, that's the way it works. And, um, you know, and of course what you find in these kind of accusations, whether it's what Ahab says to Elijah, you troubler of Israel, just you troublemaker, um, or whether it's the things that the Pharisees and the people said to Jesus, there's never anything specific. Nothing you can actually put your finger on and go and check up on. It's always nebulous. It's kind of, it's just waffle. Nothing specific. Whereas, when a man being led by God convicts someone of sin, it's specific. And the person knows that they're guilty because they know that it's happened. And so you, you see this, that in the Bible, very often, when someone is a channel of others being convicted of sin that they do not want to repent of. They will turn on God's channel and in order to throw up a smoke screen, they will seek to discredit them with various accusations. But often you'll find that the accusation is along the lines of whatever sin it is that they themselves are being convicted of. But you'll never find anything too specific. It's only general because there's nothing actually specific for them to say. Because, you know, the channel who's being falsely accused, if an accusation is false, the thing never happened. So you can't be specific, can you? <coughs> now let's, let's see, see, excuse me, my chest is closing up here. Mm, that's better. Let's just have a quick look at Satan's involvement in this, because it is, is an aspect of spiritual warfare. Obviously, anyone being used by God is a target for Satan. He doesn't want anyone being used by God. And he particularly doesn't want anyone being used by God if what God is doing through them is convicting people of sin. Because the last thing Satan wants anyone to do is for people to repent and get right with God, whether they're unbelievers who aren't born again yet, or whether they're out of fellowship Christians. Satan does not want people in right relationship with God. So therefore Satan will always be fueling the fire in this situation. So you've got the people being convicted who don't want to repent and they're getting madder and madder and madder and they're throwing out a false accusation and they're telling their lies and stuff like that. And of course Satan is, is shoveling all this coal on their fire, covering them with petrol to keep the flame burning. Now obviously it's important to realise Satan doesn't cause that bad reaction. That's the person's sinful nature that causes the bad reaction. Satan can't make anyone sin, but if someone is sinning, Satan can be there to G them along. Quite nicely, thank you. And so when people react like this, and are out of fellowship with God in this way, obviously Satan can really fuel them, because he has absolute agreement in that person's life, even if they're a Christian. He has absolute agreement if that person is in hatred towards the person who God has used to convict them, well, Satan hates that person as well, and therefore he's got a way in there. So in Satan gets in that person's <laughs> life, and he fuels this hatred up until it becomes, quite frankly, ridiculous. It, it, it gets silly. It gets out of all proportion to the events that have actually happened. And so, therefore, Satan obviously gets as much mileage out of it as he can. And what Satan's trying to do is, through the wrong reaction, he's trying to stop 
the people who are being used by God in that situation. So, that, for instance, Jesus comes on the scene, convicting people all over the place. Satan wants to stop Jesus. So Satan uses the people who are reacting against Jesus because they don't want to repent. And therefore Satan fires them up all he can in an attempt to actually get them so mad uh, you know, that eventually Jesus will give up or that Jesus will be overwhelmed or something like that. So Satan uses that reaction in order to try and put a stop to whoever it is that God is using. So, in effect, what we have here is people being used by God and other people being uh, sort of like convicted of their sins and so you get this satanic backlash. And the satanic backlash is Satan whipping up the people who are being convicted, who don't want to repent, they're already angry, they're already resentful against the people who are being used to convict them, and so therefore Satan whips it up and fans it into a flame until you get the most ridiculous hatred. And all you've got to do is to look at the hatred that people had against Jesus to see that the whole thing is absolutely ridiculous. And you'll find that Satan always plays his hand because he oversteps himself. It all gets so stupid. I mean, what did Jesus ever do that deserved death? The answer is absolutely nothing. And yet an entire nation got so fanned with hatred that an innocent man was put to death. And can you see, it's a satanic backlash, Satan fueling that fire in order to try and put a stop to what, Satan, uh, to what God is doing through those people. So obviously, to really be sold out to the Lord and to be a means of convicting people of sin. I'm not talking about the time going up and saying, well, there's this sin in your life, there's that sin in your life. That's, that's not what I'm talking about. If you're a disciple, your mere life will convict people who have undealt with sin in their lives. You know, it'll just happen. And, uh, I mean, I've literally known what it is to be hated by people who have only seen me and never even heard me. Uh, I mean, that, 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 that to me, you know, it doesn't make sense. It's spiritual warfare. I've had people tell me that they hated me the moment they saw me. I mean, it's daft, isn't it? But, but if, you know, if, if merely standing in a room, if the Lord can convict people of sin by me standing in the room, I'm delighted. <coughs> That's brilliant. But can you see, to really be a disciple, you're going to get it, aren't you? Satan is going to be out to get you. Because the last thing he wants are little lights walking around, shining into people's darkness. Because it's the darkness that is keeping people in Satan's, you know, domain. I mean, obviously unbelievers are in darkness, but even when Christians get out of fellowship with sin in their lives that they're not willing to come clean about, that they won't repent of, even though God's convicting them, I mean, you know, Satan doesn't want them convicted. He wants to turn them against those who are the means of that conviction. So obviously Satan gets as much mileage out of it as he can. So there's a satanic backlash. So, we've seen the principle, people being convicted of sin, who aren't willing to put that right. So, naturally, because of their sinful nature, they'll turn on the people doing the convicting. So, we've seen the role of the sinful nature. Now we've seen what Satan's up to in it, fueling the sinful nature and fanning it into the most ridiculous fire. And it's because Satan comes into the equation that it all gets so silly. You know, that is why everything gets so out of proportion when this happens. But what we've got to realise is that the Lord is in this too. So now, let's say we've got the people, now we've seen Satan going on behind, you know, sort of like the curtain of human affairs, but behind Satan is the Lord, because the Lord is over absolutely everything. And whatever Satan does, God is using it for his own purposes. Now then, 
how is the Lord in this bad reaction that happens? People being convicted of sin, they're not willing to repent of it. So therefore they turn against those who are doing the convicting. Satan backs them 100%. And it's the reaction that always gives them away. So the sinful nature is in the reaction. Satan is in that reaction. But I'm saying that God is in it as well. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, God is using that reaction in people to his own purposes. <laughs> and let me explain why. <clears throat> you see, the thing is, let's say God convicts you of something. He's got his finger on something in your life. And you're not happy about it. Let's say it's something fairly big. I mean, the, you know, this sort of thing don't happen in, you know, little day-to-day -day things. But God's finger, or is it Monty Python's foot, goes on an area of your life that you do not want to surrender to God. You're not willing to admit what it is that God's pointing out in you, and you're not going to come clean, all right? Now then, what is it you've got to do? And this is how our hearts work. This is how mine works. I've done this many times. I've done this. What you've got to do, you've got to keep God's finger out of that pie in your life, haven't you? But at the same, you, you now know you're out of fellowship. You know it. But of course you can't let anyone know that because then you're admitting that that thing in your life is wrong and you're not going to admit that. So you've got to be in fellowship with God even though you're not. So you've got a bit of acting to do now, haven't you? You've got to slap the smile on. You see? You're out of fellowship but you've got to act like you're in fellowship. I'm right with God. I know I'm not really, but I'm not letting anyone else know that. I'm right with God. So you're fighting God off, and you've got to keep the show going for other people. Because if other people realise you're out of fellowship with God, they might be saying, would you think it's this in your life? And then you're in real trouble, aren't you? Because now God's doing it through other people, and that's, that, that's really bad news. So you've got a bit of a show. God's convicted. He's saying, no, that's got to, you've got to put that right. And you're saying, no, I'm not going to. I'm not going to admit that it's wrong. So you, but you've got to carry on being a really good disciple, haven't you? So the act starts, all right. Um, but the point is, that act only works as long as you're still acting like a good Christian. And of course, good Christians don't get hateful, do they? Good Christians don't get resentful. So the next phase is, God's convicted you, direct, the Holy Spirit, you're ignoring it, aren't you? And you've got the act on. Oh, I'm in fellowship, I'm in fellowship. Now, God has dealt with you in the closet, you've said no. What happens next? Well, it's dining room time, isn't it? You let God deal with you in the closet, or he does it in the dining room. So God has convicted you directly by his spirit, you haven't listened. What does he do now? Now he starts drawing attention to that sin through other people, body ministry, your brothers and sisters. So next, it could happen in any one of a million ways, but next, you get corrected by someone else. And blow me down, it's the same thing that God corrected you about last week and you said no to him. Now you're in trouble, because attention is being drawn to it. Now then what happens? You, well, you can at that point, it's all right, Lord, yeah, I'm not in for a fight, I'm sorry, I come clean, I'm putting it right. And then it's all over, no problem. But if you still dig your heels in, if you're still going to dig your heels in, now you're, now you're going to start resenting the person who God is using to convict you. You won't help it, that resentment will be there. And that person will probably stay on the case. Even worse than that, even worse than that, they're not just talking to you about it, they're praying for you about it. So the conviction now goes up a level and the Holy Spirit is really, you know, on your case as well as this Christian and this Christian has corrected you, whoever they are, you know, one of your brothers and sisters who you know, love and trust and, you know, and, and now you're really in deep trouble. And that, that, that person is now getting up your nose in a big way. 
And you can't help it. Those feelings are just there. And then it gets worse and worse and worse, doesn't it? And, and you know, sort of like you wake up in the morning and you're thinking about that person. How dare they correct me about that? I know I'm right. And, you know, so you've woken up in the morning and you're thinking about them. All day at work, you've been thinking about them. And at night, you're lying in bed, winning arguments with them. You know, what Robert calls your scornflakes. You know, sort, sort of like your, you know, you can't eat a bowl of cornflakes without thinking of this person, can you? Because they're bugging you so much. And that resentment is growing and growing and growing. And Satan is fanning the fire more and more and more. Until it gets to the point where you are now actively going at that person. You're now slagging them off behind their backs. You're telling porkies about them. Your main concern in life is no longer serving the Lord, it's being derogatory about them. And you want everyone to know that they're off beam, or you can't trust them. Hence the slagging them off behind their back. The smoke screen is going up. Satan is in there and he's fanning your fire. Now, obviously, you can keep digging your heels in, but the point is, where you find God in this, is that when it gets to that point, you might find yourself stopping to think, wait a minute, if, if I am right with God, and remember the great thing is you're maintaining that you're right with God, you think, well how can I be right with God and resent them so much? And God is using the, your very overreaction to show you, hey, but can't you see, of course you're not right with me. Look how you're acting. You're in resentment, you're, you know, someone who you once loved, you're in fellowship with, suddenly you can't wait for a bus to run them over, you can't wait to hear that they've got cancer or something like that, or, you know, can you see, and there's that hatred there, that resentment. And at that point, for many Christians, it is that reaction that, that Satan is stirring up in them more and more that brings them to their senses. And let me say, I've been here. I've been there. And it's taken that to get me to admit what God was saying to me all along. When I've realised that uh, certain people, that I'm actually starting to so resent them. And why? Well, because they corrected me about something. And then I think, well, if I am right and they're wrong, well, what does it matter if they think I'm wrong when I'm right? Why aren't I at peace about it? Why am I so uptight? And the inevitable conclusion you come to is because what they corrected me about is absolutely true. It was God correcting me all the time. And therefore, this overreaction is actually our chance to have a last-ditch judge ourselves and climb out of the bog that we've wallowed ourselves into. However, if by that point people don't put a break on it and get right, well then afterwards they're in trouble because then the hatred just accelerates and it just goes absolutely bananas. But can you see that God is in that overreaction? Because he's saying, hang on, you good little Christian, if you're so right with me, why are you so up in the air? Why are you so angry? Why can't you sleep at night because you're thinking about that person all the time? You see the way it works. So the reaction is our sinful nature because we don't want to come clean. It's then increased because Satan gets in there to inflame it. But also God is using it to say, look, how much further are you going to go? Can't you see that all this anger just proves that you are not right with me, so why don't you get right with me? Can you see? It's rather like uh, the human body running a temperature. It's a warning that you're ill. 
I mean, wouldn't it be crazy lying in bed with a temperature 103, sweating like a pig, saying, no, I'm not, I'm not ill, I'm fine, I'm fine. You've got a raging temperature and you're sweating buckets. It's a sign that you're ill. Now then, God is saying, you've got a sin there that you haven't dealt with. And you're saying, no, I haven't. And he's saying, yes, you have. Well, by the time you're walking across the ceiling, really angry at other brothers and sisters for correcting you, can't you see that is your temperature? That is the sign that what they pinpointed was absolutely right. It's the giveaway, that reaction of anger and resentment. So, God is in that reaction as well in order to bring people to repentance, even if it's at the last moment. So that bad reaction is sometimes the thing that eventually opens your mind to what the Lord was saying to you in the first place. But sadly, some Christians, they get to this point and still they won't repent. And of course, they just tumble off down the other side. You know, and I mean the snowball effect, it gets bigger and bigger and bigger until they just end up obsessed with whoever it is they resent. So, therefore, you know, this principle, we see this in the way that Ahab responds to Elijah. Now then, what we must say is that because all of us, as you know, it would be very easy, wouldn't it, for each one of us to assume, um, yes, I can see myself in the role as the one who's doing the convicting who ends up being reacted against. But I can't ever see my role, see me in the role of the person doing the reacting. Now, the warning is all of us can end up as the person doing the reacting. It's not a question that there's a class of Christian who are only the convictors, and there's another class of Christian who are only the convicted. We are all potentially convictors or convicted. It just depends whether we're right with God at the time. Now then, let's um, actually move on now and look at the, the practicalities of what do you do if you are unfortunate enough to end up in such a situation. Now, there are just a couple of things that I want to underline first. Because in effect, we're looking at uh, being troublers of Israel, aren't we? when, as a result of following the Lord, you end up being accused of virtually anything, i.e. people saying you're a troublemaker and uh, you're not at all, you know, you're simply someone representing the truth of God. But there are two things that we must underline. Firstly, this teaching is not, I repeat, not a charter for going out and causing trouble all over the place. You know, just, you know, sort of like using God's word and bashing in there and crashing in there all over the place and uh, then hiding behind the fact that when there's bad reaction to you saying oh well of course it's this principle isn't it it's them trying to get at me because God's used me to convict them uh, I mean you can get a bad reaction by just being a pain in the backside that is you know that that is equally a possibility and so the point is that that, that we must never think that we can with unbridled tongues do and say what we like in the name of the Lord and then when people are, are, are walking across the ceiling swearing at us, saying, oh, well, of course they are, it's because they're being convicted. I mean, it might just be because we, you know, you've treated them really badly. Yeah, can you see what I mean? It's possible to use the word of God to really go in there and do damage to people when God's not leading you in any way at all. Now, the thing is, therefore, remember that the Bible links time and time again, it, it links truth and grace. The law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus. Now, truth must always be accompanied by two things, wisdom and love. And in fact, if you do wisdom plus love, really, that equals grace, doesn't it? Truth must be accompanied by wisdom and love. 
So the point is there are times when we say tough things. Well, there can be a million times when we've said tough things when they were quite inappropriate at that moment. You see what I mean? You can go in there far too strong, far too early. One can just be tactless without any sensitivity in the world. Uh, you know, and, and then say, well, I was speaking the truth, wasn't I? But the Bible says we must speak the truth in love and that truth must be accompanied by grace. And of course the point is, the tougher the truth, the greater must be the love and wisdom that accompanies the manner of us doing it. So therefore we must never kind of put hobnail boots on and, you know, just go out looking for arguments, whether it's with unbelievers, under the guise of evangelising them. And it's quite easy to give an unbeliever a right old intellectual thrashing, really give them a bad time. And what's the excuse? Well, I'm evangelising them. Well, I mean, you know, one might as well just be doing it about politics. You know, it's just an argument. I'm, I'm going to slay him with my superior logic. You know, can you see? Un under the excuse of evangelism. Now, if you're going to evangelise people, you may well have to say tough things, yeah. But one can end up giving people a tough time, and evangelism has become the excuse. Or it's the same with brothers and sisters. You know, I mean, you can give someone, you know, a, a brother or sister a really hard time, really tear them to shreds under the excuse of, well, I'm correcting them for their own benefit. Do you see what I mean? It's a sham. So we've got to make sure that we're not using any of, of this, all right, as an excuse for, you know, for basically being hard-nosed nutters when it comes to dealing with other people. We must deal with people with love um, and grace. Uh, it's the same with um, other Christians. I mean, say you might meet other believers, and as far as you're concerned, they're up to their eyeballs in false teaching. Well, indeed, they might be, but it would be terrible if that was used as an excuse to just have a good old argument with them, and, you know, and, and trounce them with a better understanding of the Bible. you see what I mean? That would be unloving. So it's important to realise that if ever tough things get said, that it really has been because the Lord has put you in that situation, and the Lord has required those tough things to be said. And, uh, I mean, there are some people, and, and I've known lots of Christians like this, they're, they're just too much at home with dispute, argument, and controversy. Now, the point is, if you're really going to be on the front line as a Christian, then dispute, argument, and controversy are going to be your lot. They certainly were Jesus's. But the point is, it's always dodgy if you feel too at home with it. Some people love dispute. They love controversy. Oh, it's their hobby. They're never happier than when they're at loggerheads with other people. Let me tell you, the mature believer will fight shy of anything like that. They won't dodge it. They won't run away from it. If it's inevitable, they'll face it. But only when the Lord leads them in that particular way. So it is good to fight shy of controversy. It's not good to duck it and compromise. But it's not good to be, oh, I can't wait until I get another chance to get out there in the middle of a controversy. That isn't good. The mature believer will fight shy of it. But he will be willing to say tough things if he's fairly sure that the Lord wants him to. And, uh, and there are some, you know, but believers who love it, love controversy, I tend to say they're probably not ready to be used in this way yet. Can you see what I mean? Because there'd be too much danger of just trouble for the sake of trouble. Um, that's the first thing. It's not a charter for going out and causing trouble. But a second thing that's got to be said is that it's no use thinking that God can use you in this particular way um, if, 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 if there are gaping holes in one's discipleship. The whole point about all these false accusations is that the accusations are false. 
Um, it's no use expecting God to use us in this profound way if as a result of that people who are angry with us can actually accuse us of serious things that are true. <laughs> because <laughs> then, then you're dead in the water. We've got to be in a position that if we are being falsely accused, that it can be demonstrated pretty clearly that the accusations are false. I mean, most of the people making the accusations and hearing the rumours, they won't be interested in whether they're true or false or not. But it is vitally important that we can demonstrate that they are false. Again, I'll give you a personal example. Someone, um, Robert and I were in a room with someone who screamed at me, and they were screaming, the accusation that I was a liar. Now, Robert put to them, they said, right, okay. He said, tell me one lie that Beresford has told. Now, that person could not, they, they stuttered, they thought about it, they undenied all over the place, they could not think of one example of me lying, and yet they were accusing me of being a liar. Now, here's the point. It's, it's just as well I don't have a history of telling lies in recent years, isn't it? Because, can you see, if, if, if these accusations are going to be true, well, you're dead in the water. Your testimony of the Lord can be completely scuppered by accusations against you. So, therefore, it is important that, um, you know, that, that, that any rumours and accusations that end up going round about us, it's important that we can demonstrate that they're not true. And uh, so, so therefore, if, if, if there are what I call gaping holes in our own, own discipleship, if, if, if we are yet not easy to convict, <laughs> by which I mean God is talking to us about this, that and the other, and we're still not listening, and all these gaping holes are there, if, if we are not readily convictable by the Lord ourselves, we mustn't expect to be used in this way of convicting other people, because it would be counterproductive. If you were being used in this way to really convict other people of sin, well, <coughs> remember, what do they want to do? They want to discredit you. Well, if they can actually discredit you, you know, by actually, you know, truthful accusations against you that are serious, then you're dead in the water. So it is important that there is integrity in this, absolute integrity. Otherwise, it's going to be, you know, a waste of time. So there's a sense in which this being used in this kind of way is something that we grow and mature into, which is, is fair enough. But we mustn't think we can just dive in at the deep end and go around convicting everyone of sin. It doesn't work like that. It would be foolhardy to do it. Right, okay. What I want to look at then is, um, is how should we respond... No, excuse me. <coughs> how ought we to respond if we do end up on the receiving end of this treatment, i.e. being hated by people simply because you've been the means of convicting them of sin. You know, and all the, all the rumours, all the backbiting, all the false accusations are flying around. What should, how should we handle it if we do end up on the receiving end of that situation, all right? Uh, you know, so all the nasty rumours and lies are going round about us. How do we respond? Right, well, number one, ensure that there's no truth in these nasty lies and rumours, obviously. <laughs> because if they're true, they're not lies and rumours, are they? You know, so I mean, it's like if it's going round about, well, you know, he, he tells lies. Tells the most terrible lies. 
Well, if you do tell lies, that's not a lie. It's not a false accusation. And again, you're dead in the water. So obviously, we've got to ensure that whatever these horrible things being said, you know, that you know that that they're not actually true. Um, you know that that uh, you know, and that you could demonstrate if you were ever called upon to do so, you could demonstrate that that what is being said are lies, okay. Uh, but if there is truth in it, then you've got to admit that and you've got to put that right with the people who are saying it. And you've got to say, yes, you're absolutely right, I do tell lies and I'm sorry. You know, because it's, 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 it's far easier not to get into a situation like that than to get into it and then have to go and repent, because that's, that's really difficult. Um, you know, but if it's needed, it's needed. Let's just, um, each of these points, I'm just going to end with a scripture. Go to 1 Peter, just to see all these things written down. Uh, 1 Peter... And um, one, one Peter, and chapter three, and verse sixteen. He says, "Keep your conscience clear, so that when you are abused, those who revile your good behaviour in Christ may be put to shame." Now, what's he talking about? He's talking about when you're a victim of this kind of thing. You're being abused and your name is being reviled. Peter says, keep your conscience clear so that if this ever happens, your good behaviour will put them to shame. But they know full well that to say anything against you, they know they've got to make up lies because they haven't got any goods on you. You see? So the first thing, if there are nasty, horrible things being said about us, the first thing, make sure they're not true. If they are true, then we've got to say, oh, yes, you're absolutely right. I'm sorry. Uh, now then, secondly... Uh, we've got to ask if people are doing this. Um, was our attitude right in regards to whatever happened that caused the furore in the first place? So, for instance, someone might be really angry with you because maybe you've corrected them. All right. Now then, the point is, what you said might well be absolutely true, but was it done in the right attitude? Yeah, can you see what I mean? If, if you correct someone in the wrong way and, and you know and humiliate them or, 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 or kind of really treat them badly then there's a sense in which there's a bit of justification for their anger so we've got to make sure as well that whatever happened whatever we did or said that caused the furore was our attitude right in it that's important as well go to Ephesians 4 remember because it's uh, speak the truth in love Ephesians 4 and verse 15. <coughs> Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. So we've really got to check that. Uh, one of the hardest things that I ever had to do is a bloke that, that, that many years ago, oh, this is going back, you know, over, over 10 years, maybe 12, 13 years ago, and, and and this was a particular bloke, he really did give me a hard time. And, uh, you know, there, there's no doubt, he, he, you know, he was well out of order. You know, he, he stirred up a lot of trouble. And, uh, you know, he, he's, he really did give me a, a bad time. And uh, he, he and I disagreed about certain things, and, and he was very angry that I wouldn't agree with him over certain things in regarding to the bloke. The actual specific thing, he was into the heavy shepherding thing. And he wanted me to be into it, and, and I wouldn't touch it with a barge pole. And, uh, you know, he sort of like felt very much that the fact that I wouldn't agree with him, and, uh, you know, he got really, 
you know, sort of really a bit, a bit silly about it, you know, went on a, a bit of a campaign. And uh, he really did give me a hard time. And uh, I remember, and it, it was pretty much out of the blue, the Lord convicting me, not that I had said anything wrong to this bloke, but that I'd done it in the wrong attitude. That, that in my discussions with him, that my attitude had gone astray towards him. And it had. And the Lord convicted me of this. And, um, and, and, and I just knew that I had to go and apologise to him. Because it had got to the point where I was no longer, as we would debate this, it was no longer a genuine, I'm, you know, I'm trying to help the guy. I'm mean, okay, he's asking me things, I'm disagreeing with him. But he, he started to get on my nerves. He really did. And my attitude towards him was wrong. And God convicted me of this. Not of anything I'd ever said to him, or, or the, the, the content of the case that I put to him that made him so angry, but that my attitude was wrong. And I remember cycling over, it was about six miles one night, on, on the old bush bike, boom, 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 through the country in the middle of nowhere. Cycling over, it's the hard, hardest journey I've ever had. Oh, I've got to go in there and say sorry to this bloke. You know, it's going to be so old. So I knew what he was going to do. You know, and obviously you're swallowing all your pride. Yeah, it's always good for us to swallow pride. Uh, it was a really hard journey. Uh, I knocked on the door and I went in and I said, I've come to apologise. The Lord has shown, I've had a wrong attitude towards you and I'm sorry. I haven't been loving you. You know, and I'm sorry, I'm here to put that right. And, and, and I knew exactly what was going to happen. He came, he gave me a big hug, this big grin on his face. This look of absolute exultant victory and he gave me a big hug. And I thought, oh, I know exactly what's going to happen now. And he thought I, that I was deciding to agree with him. So he was saying how wonderful it was that I come round to his way of thinking. I said, no, 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 I said, no, I said, I'm, I'm apologising for my attitude. You know, not anything I've said. I don't, I don't change that at all. And he went up the wall and he started shouting at me. So I got on my bike and I cycled back home and I was so happy. <laughs> but, you know, because that, that burden had gone, I was right with the Lord again. You know, and I loved that bloke. And my attitude to him didn't get wrong again. He kept giving me the same old hard time, but it didn't matter. He wasn't bugging me anymore. Can you see what I mean? I, I was lying awake at night, he was bugging me, and I wanted to get him sorted. And I was completely at peace about it. And that is important that we make sure that attitude um, is right. Now, the, the other things I'm going to say assume that the, those first two things are all sorted, that attitude is right, and that, you know, that, that there are no gaping holes in... You know, I, if, if any accusations are flying round about you, that they're false, all right? So, on that assumption, the third one is this. You must... Anyone who does this to you, who, who treats you in this way, the old accusations and rumours behind your back, doing a hate thing, you must forgive them continually, every day, until they don't bother you anymore. <laughs> you must, you must, you must. Even though they're wrong and you're right, if you don't forgive them, you are then worse than they are. You must forgive them. Matthew chapter 6, and <coughs> verse 14, if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father also will forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. So you must forgive. Forgive, forgive, forgive. You must not get into a resentful thing back. Remember, they've already refused to forgive you. They're resenting you. I mean, don't forever say, oh, they're resenting me and end up resenting them back. That would be daft. You must forgive them for what they're doing to you. The, the, the lies, the slander, the hatred. You must forgive them continually, every day, 
until it doesn't bother you anymore. When they don't bother you anymore, when they don't bug you anymore, then you don't have to forgive them anymore because then they're forgiven. But as long as they keep bugging you, you've got to keep forgiving them until they're not bugging you anymore. Can you see the point? Um, now then, number two, we must realise, we must accept and admit that when these things happen, like the old lies and the slander going round, the only reason that that does bother us and bug us is because of our own pride and self-righteousness. Now, let me say here that if it ever happens with friends, obviously there's pain. I mean, Jesus knew what it was to be betrayed by friends. I'm not talking by bugginess, I'm not talking about being hurt or upset when friends do it to you. That's not what I'm talking about. But mostly when this happens, it's, it's you know, sort of like your, your name is being dragged through the mud amongst people that you don't know from Adam hardly. They might just be names that you know. So there's no hurt there, is there? You know, it's not as if that's, you know, sort of like personal friends have done it. And in situations like that, we've got to realise that when this happens, it only bugs us because of our own pride and self-righteousness. Back into 1 Peter. And 1 Peter chapter 5. I've lost 1 Peter. I've not found again. 1 Peter chapter 5. And if you find verse 5, and uh, he says, Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that in due time he may exalt you. Uh, this is 1 Peter, chapter 5, and verse 5 and 6. So, he says, humble yourself under the almighty hand of God. Now then, what could be more humbling than people dragging your good name through the mud? It's good for us. It's the fact that our names are our good names. That's the problem. It shouldn't bother us what people think. It should only bother us what God thinks. What God thinks is what matters, what the law thinks, not what other people think. So, therefore, when, when you do become the victim of this kind of, you know, kind of hate thing, you know, and people kind of reacting against you and throwing up this smokescreen, you've got to realise that the reason that it bugs you is your own pride and self-righteousness. And because it's humbling us, that's brilliant. God is using it to humble us more and more and more. That's brilliant. Now, I want to emphasise again that when this happens and you find friends turn against you, Obviously, there's a different kind of hurt in that. I'm not saying that to be upset then is, is pride and self-righteousness. Because obviously, if friendships are lost, that's going to be sad. You know, I mean, Jesus felt the pain of the fact that his disciples, you know, kind of like went against him. But what I'm saying is that thing when, it, when you're bugged and you think, I'll show them, that's not right what they're saying, and you want to get in there and justify yourself. That is your pride and self-righteousness being touched. And that's good for us. Uh, fifthly, rejoice in the fact that when this happens, God is using it to reduce us to nothing. I mean, after all, we're specks of dust with an attitude problem. So when things like this happen, you know, and, and, and we think, you know, my goodness, you know, I, I mean, we're absolutely nothing. What on earth do people think? My that's good. It's good for us that God is reducing us to absolutely nothing. Remember what John the Baptist said of Jesus. He must increase and I must decrease. Just go to Math back to Matthew 5. Matthew chapter 5, and uh, start at verse 10, Jesus said, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
Blessed are you when men revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so men persecuted the prophets who were before you. We're supposed to be leaping with joy when it happens. Why? Because it's bashing our pride and self-righteousness, and that ought to make us rejoice. It's actually exalting us in the Lord. So we've got to rejoice through this. It's good. It's good. It's good. Now then, lastly, you must desire blessing and not disaster for those who are doing it to you. <laughs> that must be your motive towards them. Um, the aim, remember, if you ever do end up in the position of like a trouble of Israel and people being convicted and turning on you, remember the whole aim is that they repent of their sin and are restored to the Lord. Do you see what I mean? It's for their benefit. It's for their blessing. So we've got to make sure that we desire their blessing and that we don't in any way want revenge or want to see disaster come upon them. And the moment that that is in our heads, we've got to repent of that because that is sin, all right? That is sin. Then we get back into 1 Peter. A bit all over the place tonight, but again, that's good for us as well. 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9, and he says, Do not return evil for evil or reviling for reviling. But on the contrary, bless, for to this you have been called. So we must bless those who persecute us. It doesn't mean that you carry on with them as normal, as if nothing has happened. That, you know, that'd be daft. But you must be wanting their blessing and not disaster to come upon them. So, I repeat, in regards to this you know, whole thing about being used to convict people and them turning on you, don't go looking for trouble. It's not an excuse for causing trouble. Uh, remember, we saw in Romans, insofar as it depends upon you, live peaceably with all. Uh, but there is a time to speak, and there is a time to speak with boldness. And we've simply got to learn to be open to that when the Lord is leading us, not to do it in any way, um, you know, sort of like, just because we feel like a bit of trouble. It's got to be as, as far as we're able to ascertain, because the Lord is leading us to. And remember, there is a time to say tough things. Uh, we haven't got time to read it now, but read Matthew 23. I mean, Jesus, his denouncement of the Pharisees. Woe to you for this, this, this. You whitewashed tombs. Strong stuff. There was a time when the disciples came to Jesus. He said, Lord, you've upset the Pharisees. And Jesus said, don't, don't worry about them. They're blind guys leading the blind. Jesus said to the fact, uh, he said to the Pharisees, you are of your father the devil. There's a time to say tough things. Jesus went into the Jewish temple and he physically drove them out because of their dishonesty. There is a time to be tough. It's not all gentle Jesus, meek and mild. There's a time to correct and there's also a time to correct with boldness. There's a time to say the very worst possible thing that could be said in that situation. And you know that all hell's going to break loose, but it's the thing that needs to be said. And there's the time to say it. And if we're faithful to the Lord, and if he's telling us to say it, we've got to say it. It's as simple as that. We must never let causing trouble prevent us doing what God's will is, but we must never, ever think it a light thing to cause trouble, because it's not a light thing. We must make sure that we're never causing trouble just for the sake of it. And in God's kingdom today, God is raising up lots of, well, an army of little troublers of Israel, an army of little, you know, Elijahs, so that the challenge can go out. And remember that the challenge is first to God's own people. And our challenge today is firstly, not to unbelievers, that's evangelism. 
Our challenge is to believers, to get right with God and to be faithful to his word. That is what the ministry of Elijah was all about and that is why Ahab turned on him uh, in the way that we've seen tonight. And uh, next week we'll see the rest of what was said between Elijah and Ahab on that particular occasion. So we will end it there. A Bible study in soprano.